Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Luke 16, 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you are no longer to be the manager. And the manager said to him, self, said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you on this uh, cold November day with the snow falling. And Lord, there's, there's many anxious hearts with all that's been happening in our country and the COVID issue, Lord. There's so much that can distract. And in these few moments, clear those cobwebs, put blinders on and allow us to glean from your word as you promise it will not come back void. We thank you for this journey through Luke and we've come to a very difficult passage and so just I ask that you would guide us in our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 16 and then if you've just joined us, we're 
journeying through the Gospel of Luke. Last week was wonderful, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, you, if you can't preach that, you just need to hang it up, right? The prodigal son, what a beautiful story. And then you get to 16, and it's like, whoo! This is probably the most difficult parable that Jesus gives in the, that's recorded in the Gospels. It's the parable of the clever steward. And before we jump into the text, I want you to see what's going on here because it seems rather odd that this should be on the heels of the prodigal son, right? That glorious story where the father welcomes home this wayward son and the older son's kind of given a little instruction and things are great. And then you get to this, which deals with money. And a pastor, they say, should never talk about money. <laughs> I'm joking, but you know, that gets us all a little nervous anyways. And you're going, where are you going with this, Lord? But if you think about it, the prodigal son, the, the parable, deals with two boys who both struggle with possessions. They both struggle with greed. And that leads us into 16, which I think the Lord, well, it's clear, because when we get to the middle of 16, he's gonna say to the religious rulers, you have a problem with money. And so in 16, we have two parables. We're gonna look at this one this week, and next week, the, the other parable, which deals with rich man and Lazarus, which is debated whether it's a parable at all or if it's a true story. We'll talk about that next week. But today we're here looking at this parable which examines the true meaning of discipleship. What do we do with our possessions and, and what are we to do in, when it comes to serving the Lord? So let's look at this text. I probably will create more questions than answers this morning. So bear with me as we look at, again, a very difficult passage. So as Jesus said to the disciples, and you, you have this rich man who's been informed of accusations. There have been charges leveled against his prodigal steward, is what we're going to call him. The steward is the overseer, and this was very common for the affluent. They would have a manager that would make sure the estate was running well, etc. And you have to wonder if the rich man didn't have a suspicion because the text tells us that there were accusations leveled and I kind of wonder if the rich man hasn't been soliciting some feedback. <laughs> Tell me about my steward. What do you know about him? What's he been doing? I have some suspicions. I don't know. I'm reading between the lines. But it's certainly there. And, and the accusations is that the manager wasting. It's the same word for scattering. It's what was used of the prodigal son in 1513. Not a coincidence. Uh, this steward is has been apparently foolish with what's been given to him. And the manager wastes no time, or the owner doesn't, in confronting the manager. After all, it is his assets, right? And he says to the manager, what is this I hear about you? Which is a great rendering there. Uh, I, I need an inventory, right? Look what he says. Turn the account of your administration. I want to see the books. Open them up. What's been going on here? In fact, it, the in one way, the steward, I feel sorry for him. He's guilty before he's been proven innocent, right? He's already assumed that the owner has, that the accusations are true. My steward has been a louse. He's been cheating me or something to that effect. And look what the text says. You're done. You're no longer going to be serving as my manager. It's harsh. And what does the steward do? <laughs> Did you see what he does? He says, what am I gonna do? Right? What should I do since my master is asking my position away? 
I'm in this level of the stratosphere here in the stratification of the society. I'm I'm up here managing this whole estate. I've got it great. And what's he afraid of? What am I going to do? I'll have to dig ditches. (laughs) I'll have to do manual labor. And I don't do well with calluses. This isn't good. I'm used to telling what others are to do. I don't want to be doing that stuff. And worse yet, he says, if I refuse to do that, which is beneath me socially, that I'd have to go do that, he says, I I might have to beg. Well, Jewish writings in the intertestament period are very clear about those who beg. Sirach 48, 28 says, my son, lead not a beggar's life. It is better to die than to beg. I mean, this guy's doomed to spare, right? <laughs> I've been caught. I don't know what to do. And the worst part is, I, I, you know, I, I can't do this. I, I, I can't dig ditches. That would be beneath me. And I'm certainly not going to beg. It's a, it's a sense of entitlement, which I would argue plagues our society today. You know, think about it. He says, he, I haven't worked up through the ranks. This was given to me. I've had this position. And what's a sense of entitlement? Well, it's a personal characteristic that's based on the belief that someone deserves special treatment or recognition for something they didn't earn. In other words, it's people with the mindset that the world owes them rather than them owing the world. I love the quote. It says, it's been said that entitlement is a delusion built on self-centeredness and laziness. (laughs) And here you have this steward, and, and certainly entitlement finds great company in the presence of narcissism. And here's this steward, this is who I am. This is what I do. You know, and he's lived a good life. Because apparently, according to the accusation, he's been skimming off the top. So what does he do? Look at the text and see what it says. He goes, ah, I know what I'm going to do in verse 4. I'm going to bring in, I'm going to make myself available to those who have, are owing to my master. In other words, is that, in scholars debate, is he, is he looking for a place to stay? Because he talks about if I get kicked out of this estate, I don't have a home, so I need to find a debtor who I can cozy up to and, and have a place to go, or is he looking for a new patron, someone that will employ him? I, I think it's probably both. They go hand in hand. So he, he's looking for uh, a place that he can move to next. And in verse 5, so he contacts these debtors and he asks them, how much do you owe my master? It seems rather odd that he should ask that question. I think he probably knows. Maybe not. But it's, it, one scholar says the question is unnecessary except for psychological value because a steward would have had clear records. In fact, that's what the owner asked for. Give me the records of what people owe. I want to see the books. And so we see in verses 6 and 7, this steward has concocted up what he's going to do. And he says, we've got this, this one debtor who owes, the text tells us, a hundred measures of olive oil. Well, what is a hundred measures of olive oil? Let me show you a slide here. 
our staff is, or our crew is going to help us. Aren't we glad for our AV team? I tell you, they keep us alive. Oh, thank you very much. There he is as well. So 100 measures of olive oil is uh, 875 gallons estimated. And what does that mean? How much does this guy owe? It's a ton. Because what this entails, it's 150 olive trees. Okay, we're, we're not talking a small farm. This is an estate. Furthermore, if you do the math, uh, the consumption of one person in the ancient world was 20 kilograms. So we're talking about enough olive oil for 166 adults in one year. Olive oil wasn't just used for your salad. It was used to, it was your fuel. It lit your lamps. It was used for special ceremonies. So there are a variety of, of reasons it's used. By the way, the average American consumes 19.7 pounds of ice cream every year. Just thought I'd let you know. That's... <laughs> Very depressing. Anyway, going back to the olive oil, and we look at this. Uh, let me give you a, as well. The text tells us that it's about a thousand denarii. What that means is that one denarii is, is uh, a little. That's a little more than a day's wage. So you're talking three to four years of salary. This is a lot of money that's been owed. Correct. I, I did something just for fun. In the average bottle, if you pick up in the grocery store, we would have filled up about 9,000 bottles of olive oil. So we're talking a lot of oil. And, and so the, the first debtor, we're told, again, owes 100 measures of olive oil. Look what the second one admits. He owes 100 measures of wheat. And again, the question is, how much is that? Well, that's 1,100 bushels. Or again, if we do the math, we're talking about 100 acres in the ancient world that would have been necessary to produce that kind of grain it's enough to feed 140 adults for the year so it's a significant amount it would have cost the text tells us about 2,500 to 3,000 denarii so we're talking now eight to ten years a substantial amount of money is it not and just for the sake of trivia it would have been about 13,000 boxes of cereal today so there you are so if you do the math you're going, well, thank you, Hoffinitz. I really appreciated that. I know, it's crazy. But what, is the, what does the steward say? He goes, to the one who owns the oil, I'm going to reduce it to 50%. That seems very magnanimous, right? You don't have to all, we're just going to cut it in half. To the 100 measures of wheat, he says, we're going to reduce that one by 25%. Seems to be a bit of a rarer commodity. But nonetheless, he says, we're going to reduce this for you. Well, of course, the question is why? What is the steward trying to accomplish in these reductions? That's what's key to us understanding the text because later we're told by the owner, you're a shrewd dude, right? Well done. Scholars debate. So let me give you, if you're writing these down, I'll give you four. The first is what the steward is doing is that he recognizes the price has been gouged. And so he's reducing it, which is a bummer for the owner because he just lost 50% of his uh, monies that he would have brought in on the oil. But what the steward has done is he's brought the price down to where it really should be. A second is that no, 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 no. What the steward has done is he's removed his interest. It was too high. It did not fit with the Mosaic law and so what he's doing is to try to bring his former owner back into keeping with the mosaic stipulations. There's some problems with that because it's inconsistent between the oil and the wheat. 
A third is that he's removed his commission. This is what he's been gouging the debtors with. He's been charging extra, padding his pocket all along. No wonder he's freaking out about having to go dig or, or beg. I mean, he's been making a fortune off of his owner. A another possibility is that he's simply trying to retrieve as much as possible, knowing that there's going to be a transition, uncertain what the new steward will be able to do, and so he's trying to help his owner. Whatever the case whatever view you take the steward's actions is definitely to lessen the debtor's burden whether it's 50 percent or 25 percent and what is he trying to accomplish the text is clear he's trying to, to uh, have goodwill you know if i reduce your debt by 50 you know oh thank you you know now i've i've i established a friend here right i did this for you you need to do this for me a little bit like the mafia uh, i'm here to help um and and, and so, in so doing, again, he's hoping that this perhaps would give him a good footing with other merchants that his owner deals with. The manager is still operating, interestingly, on the behalf of the master, but clearly without the master's approval. Notice that? Notice what he says to the, the one with the oil. He says, take your bill, sit down, and write 50. Now, why, why does he have to write 50? Because it's of authenticity the debtor's handwriting. This is what you have agreed to because you wrote it in. So it's like signing your name, but then some. And, he, and he's saying, listen, I, I'm doing this on behalf of my master. And so we get to verse eight. And this is where whatever view you take on what the steward did, it even complicates it further. Because notice what the master says to the dishonest manager. You have acted shrewdly. And in a sense to be, there's a matter of praise here. The idea of wise or shrewd is used of the, the rich or the man who builds his house upon the rock. It's used of what Jesus says that when you go out among the wolves, you need to be very wise as serpents. That's the same term that's being used here. But what is this owner commending his steward for? I mean, after all, he just, the owner just lost 50% of the oil. He lost 25% of the wheat. What is to commend him for? Some scholars say, well, it's, there's just sarcasm. That's what this parable is highlighting. The owner really is being rather ironic or, again, uh, sarcastic. That doesn't seem to fit. There's a, he says he's pleased. He, he commends him. That doesn't seem to fly. Another is that, well, the story is just showing us a bad guy. And that's for the purpose of leading us into verse 9 through 13. But Jesus never gives a parable where there's an eth unethical point at the, the, what centers in with the parable. And so that doesn't seem to fit either. Others argue, well, he's not being commended for his uh, dishonesty. He's only being committed for that he took the opportunity, right? And one scholar writes, although the content of the steward's behavior is unjust, it's prudent, and that's why he's being applauded. But again, that doesn't seem to fit. I think the best explanation is that we're living in a society in the first century here where honor is key. In fact, it's more important than money. And what the steward has done has ingratiated himself not only to his debtors, but he's helped 
his master be ingratiated. In other words, his master looks really good. Now, a bummer for the master, but think about this. He's also put the master in a very precarious position publicly, because if he scolds his servant, he's gonna look bad to the debtors. And so it's kind of a checkmate. And in so doing, one scholar writes, by contesting the remission, the master would effectively be further shaming himself while ratifying the decision of the slave would serve to bolster his honor and thus rectify any shame caused him by the reckless behavior of the steward. I think what's going on here is the, this is Hoffman's theory, I won't go to a firing squad, but I think what the steward has done, he's tried to retrieve as much money as possible and in so doing, he ingratiates himself to the debtors, which he really needs an out if things go really bad, but also trying to help his master as best he could in the process. Again, you could debate it, but the point of this parable moves into verse eight, and that is the people of this world are more shrewd. Whatever interpretation you take, this steward has thought through this. He's moved the chess pieces, right? He knows exactly hopefully where this is gonna land. It's not just willy-nilly. Think about this, he wasn't appointed, I'm sure, by the owner because he was a slouch or couldn't manage the books. He had to have been very good at what he did. And maybe really good because he was able to hide it from his master, I don't know. But nonetheless, he, he's very calculated and the text tells us we as children of light, we as ones who follow the Lord, need to be wiser than even that steward. Bach in his commentary on Luke says, the children of the world give more thought and foresight into their future than God's children. It's a sad commentary. We need to be thinking the long-term effect of our actions as those who do not know God and who are desirous to protect their earthly well-being. Well, Jesus doesn't end the parable here because he has three implications in verses nine through 13, and these there listed in your notes. The first of these is the call to be generous with your resources. In verse nine, it's laid out, and I tell you, you'll make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth and laying this out. The term there is mammon. It's an Aramaic term. We see a lot of Aramaic terms in the New Testament because that's the language of the local yokels. When Jesus sat around the fire with his disciples, he spoke Aramaic. The New Testament's written in Greek and Jesus would have known Greek as well. It's the international language like English is today. But mammon is a term that, that entails not just your pesos or shekels, it entails all of your possessions. In other words, what Jesus is saying when you make friends for yourself, it's not just giving out money to help those who are in need. It's an overall use of your money with those you engage. But notice it's called worldly wealth. Did you catch that in verse nine? In other words, it's unrighteous wealth. And you go, why is it, I've heard filthy lucre, but why, why do we call it that in the text? Well, you think about money. Money in and of itself is not evil, it's the love of money, but that's often where money leads. Uh, pursuit of finances can make people selfish, it can cause them to take advantage. It's focused on the temporal and it can cause them to be unfaithful. 
Look at the oil and the wheat. We're talking a 50% reduction and, and the owner seems to be okay and so does the steward. That's a lot of money that's been reduced. Someone was making a fortune. <laughs> and same with the wheat. And he says here in the text, so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed in the, in the eternal homes. Who is the one welcoming? Many argue it's the friends that you were nice to, they're now in heaven and they welcome you with open arms. I don't think so. I think the subject here is God himself. I think it's intentionally vague. God responds to disciples who love their neighbors with concrete action, even down to the use of money. Such disciples are evidence as active as they walk with God that it's a product of faith that is clearly committed to him. In other words, as we look to be shrewd as the steward, if not more so, right? We need to look at internal dividends that require us to be extremely wise in how we invest what God has given us now for his glory. And so we see here the first implication from this parable is that we need to be generous. After this parable, Jesus, I, I mentioned this earlier, will go after the religious rulers because they are not generous. He says, this is what you need to be. So what does scripture teach us about giving? Let me give you, no pun intended, just a few things to write down as we look at what does giving mean in scripture? The first of these, it's to give is as if you are a conduit of God's grace and goodness. In Paul's exhortation to give financially to the Jerusalem saints at the church at Corinth, he says, to the church, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that although he was rich, became poor for your sakes so that you by his poverty could become rich. In other words, there's a direct correlation between money, giving, and grace. It says you need to be God's conduit. Secondly, when we look at giving and how it implies in the New Testament, it's rooted in the will of God. In the same context of, with Paul to the church at Corinth, he said, the Macedonian believers have given to, by the will of God. Well, how do you know the will of God? You're in constant prayer, you're constant fellowship, you're in the word. It, it's one who walks with God and that should govern us in these matters. Third, to be born, giving is to be born out of sympathy and a caring heart. We see this time and time again in the New Testament, a recognition of those who are in need. Here's another qualification. To be a giving individual is to be done out of cheerfulness, right? While there are a variety of reasons to compel one to give, Paul explicitly states that our giving should be done with cheerfulness. I love the verse, we're gonna be launching a capital campaign Yay, we're gonna have our own building soon and very soon, God willing, right? And so we're gonna be launching a, a capital campaign and the verse we've selected is that, that God loves a cheerful giver. And so be praying as we go through that. It's not why I'm preaching on this text today, it's where it fell in our study of Luke, but it, it gives us pause to think, okay, what does that mean for us and as a congregation, for me individually? Are we to be giving graciously? Here's another aspect of giving seen in the New Testament. It's to be done cautiously, exploring all sides and understanding the facts. You think about Paul's collection for the saints in Jerusalem. It was calculated, it was carefully orchestrated, it was purposeful, and it was direct. 
You look at Paul's ministry, it's two-pronged. One is get the gospel out. The second was taking up a collection for the saints back in Palestine. Another aspect of the giving, it's qualitative. What do I mean by that? The Macedonian church that is applauded because they didn't just give, but they gave beyond their means. And we'll get to that point in a minute with application. It's not 10%, it's 100% that God owes. Owns, I should say. Well, another aspect of giving is to look to the Lord for blessing and eternal reward. And that's the point that's being made here, right, in verse nine. So you'll be welcomed into the eternal abode so that, you, that the Lord will honor the second Corinthians 9, God has the power to provide you with every kind of blessing so that in every circumstance you may always have everything you need and still have ample resources for every kind of good work. Giving graciously is looking at what God will do and he will increase your giving according to 2 Corinthians. And then finally, it's to glorify God. When you look at the giving, it's to honor him and to, to exalt him. When you think about it, giving is an act of worship. It's, it's part of what we do. John Templeton, some of you know, the American-born British investor and banker made this, and philanthropist made this great statement. The best investment with the least risk and the greatest dividend is giving. And Jesus is going after the heart. It's the problem with the prodigal son and the older son it is, no, 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 I, I deserve these things. This is mine. <laughs> You're not playing with my toys. I got some over here, but these are mine. And, and you get to this parable and the world is very calculated with finances. And the Lord is saying, careful. We are to give, we're, we're to think long-term and the implications that come with our finances. And what's the opposite of giving? It's hoarding. And the scripture has a lot to say about the difference between hoarding versus saving. Hoarding is a mindset. And we are constantly called to evaluate our desire to save and whether or not greed has crept in and is taking over. Whatever you consume, whatever, latches onto your pocketbook, ultimately it can be your God. So be very careful. Giving some of our surplus is a good strategy for resisting the temptation to overvalue it. <laughs> and so this implication number one is the, the call to be generous with our resources. There's a second in verse 10. And the one who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And this leads us to the second implication, and that is the call to be faithful in our resources. There's a Jewish writing way after the New Testament, Exodus Rabbah, but it talks about how David and Moses were faithful in tending sheep, so God let them lead his people. Wasn't that great? And on another scale, we can look at, if we, we can't handle what God gives us this side of eternity, what do we expect for eternity? God's saying, I, I, this is a, a litmus test. I'm gonna see how you do with what I give you. And, and Matthew 25, think about this text. When the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. And, and why? Because when I was hungry, you gave me food. 
When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothing. Stewardship of our resources is what we do after we believe. <laughs> We've called on the name of the Lord. Now what do we do with what we have been given? And Jesus states via this parable, we need to be very shrewd in thinking through long-term, not only the short-term, but long-term, what are we doing in being faithful with what God has given? And that leads us to the third, the call to serve God over our resources. And he says, you cannot serve, it closes this section, God and mammon. They are not co-equals and they will rival. And Luke 12 earlier stated, where your treasure is, there will be your heart. Craig Blomberg in his book, A Biblical Theology of Possessions, it's dynamite if you're interested in this topic, uh, Blomberg. He wrote, materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today. It's easy, isn't it, to fall in? Well, I gotta, the Joneses have this X, Y, and Z, and I think I should have X, Y, and Z. Well, I, I wanna make sure I have a nest egg. And you, you go through the list, and certainly we need to be good stewards in, in, in investing and thinking through the future. But again, there's this line, isn't there, between hoarding and saving and giving. The way to ensure that we're placing the Lord over our possessions is by putting our resources to use for others. I love the Christmas carol. Remember the Christmas carol with Ebenezer Scrooge? And he meets Jacob Marley. In that first scene, Jacob's this ghost. And they have this discussion and Scrooge goes, well, you, you were a good businessman. You made money. And Marley goes, business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. And of course, what he's bemoaning is that should have been his business, but it wasn't. As believers, our business is glorifying God. Right? What we have, what are we doing to glorify him? Ebenezer Scrooge was fortunate enough to have a second chance on evaluating his finances because he was headed down a path of destruction. Well, let me give you three things to look at in light of this parable that are there in your notes. The first of these is that a godly steward or godly stewardship recognizes that we are not the source of our gifts, abilities, and I would argue ultimately our resources. Everything we have is from the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, and we remember we studied Moses this past summer and the, the Israelites coming out of the land of Egypt and in Deuteronomy 8, take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes. When you have eaten your fill and have built the houses and you live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then he says in verse 14, do not exalt yourself. Forget and forgetting the Lord your God. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. Years ago, a distant relative gave me the pocket watch that belonged to my great-grandfather. It's not extremely rare. It's not an expensive timepiece, but for me, it's priceless. I keep it safe 
I pull it out from time to time, show the kids, this was your great-grandfather's watch. And I treasure that and, and value it and guard it and protect it because you know, it was entrusted to me to, to keep on the Hafidit's legacy. How much more all that God has given to us. I'm not taking that pocket watch to heaven. <laughs> but think about what God has entrusted to us that's been passed to us. The, our salvation, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the indwelling of the Spirit, your health, the freedoms of living in this country, it's all because of God's gracious hand. We have been entrusted with much and we must be shrewd in what we do for his glory, right? And another point here, not only that does everything belong to God, but godly stewardship understands the importance of faithfulness in the small things. I love the missionary Hudson Taylor. If you don't know who he is, Google his name. He was a giant in the faith. He says, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in the little things is a great thing. <laughs> I had a friend when we lived in Dallas, uh, I was studying down there, he said, hey, I'm gonna start working out at the gym and looking at you, you need to join me. I said, okay. So we were walking through and he had this regiment and I said, I don't see any proof. But he goes, just be faithful on the little things. It'll be fine. He, he would always quote that. I didn't care for him, but oh well. <laughs> And you can see it wasn't very successful. <laughs> um, you want to accomplish a great thing for God? You want to be used by him mightily? Then you need to roll up your sleeves and tackle the insignificant, the unnoticed tasks. We have several who are going to be auditioning for our music ministry area next week. And if you're interested, uh, see me afterwards or send me an email. But um, there's a form they have to fill out and one of the questions why do you want to be in worship right <laughs> I remember a, a lady who was asked to play the piano at a church that I was serving at she goes yes I finally have power I'm not sure how 88 keys gives you power but okay um, careful being faithful in the little things Matthew 28 for to all those who have more will be given and they will have an abundance from, the, from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Wow. And so, God's stewardship is calling for a recognition that it all flows from him, that we are to be faithful. And there's a third there in your notes. Godly stewardship acknowledges that how we address the resources of God that he has given to us is not a financial decision. Catch this but a spiritual decision. Think about the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law with the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath year where the ground was to not be plowed and, and, and corners were to be left for the poor and debt was to be removed. It, it all deals with finances, yet it's directly intertwined with the Mosaic Law. If you wanted to walk in holiness under the Mosaic law, then it also spilled over into your finances. Interesting, isn't it? They're directly linked, and, and the New Testament is no different, as we see here in Luke's Gospel in 16 with this rather unique parable that, that has some twist in knowing how to interpret. The bottom line is, you either serve God or you serve mammon. Dennis uh, 
uh, Ramsey's notes, Rainey, excuse me, in your notes says, God owns it all and you are stewards of his resources. Because you are stewards of the resources God has entrusted to you, every financial decision you make is actually a spiritual decision. When's the last time you before you decide where you're gonna write a check? <laughs> or how you're gonna spend some monies? Or as we go into Christmas and you start buying Christmas gifts, sit down and pray through those. What are we gonna do with those? How much should we spend? Who are we gonna to give to? At the end of the year, etc. He goes on to say, for many, that's a revolutionary concept, and I would agree. How you manage your finances is a pretty good barometer of the condition of your spiritual life. Well, it's a difficult text, isn't it? As I told you, the prodigal son, that's nice, it's lovely, but when you start meddling with finances and our resources, that's where it gets sticky, but that's where the Lord's going with this. He's not done. It's interesting, look at verse 14. The Pharisees, and notice what the text says, who loved money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. <laughs> the ones who should know better, the ones who knew the Mosaic law, and they said, you've gotta be kidding, Jesus. No, he's not kidding. All that we have is from him. The faithfulness in the small things the Lord will reward, and Ultimately, what we do with our finances is a spiritual matter. It's not just an economic decision. And so, may there be a day when our master commends us for acting shrewdly with the resources he has granted to us. May we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> Father, this is a difficult text. And when it comes to money, we all start to get a little <laughs> uncomfortable. Oh, it's easy to rally around grace and it's easy to around, around hope and love and forgiveness, but when you recognize the bottom line is that we're to be sold out to you. And it's so easy in this world to be distracted, to lose sight of what we're to be doing. That wasn't the case with the manager. He had a beam and, and knowing exactly what he needed to do. May that be true of us in handling the resources you have lavished on us, O oh Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your hand of generosity. Thank you for all that you give us in this country that we live in. And may we not take that be for granted. And may we be found indeed faithful and good servants of you. In Jesus' name, amen.